The passage today I entitled The Fulfilled Prophecy in the Events of the Cross. But I gave it that title probably midway through my study. If I had to retitle it, this would be my title. The True Independence Day. And I'll explain to you why, but before I do, let's pray. Father, we come to you as your children by faith. The world that we live in and the experiences that we have, our culture, tells us often that you're not really there or you're not really true or maybe you don't really care. But Father, we, by faith, we cling to the truth of your word. We believe that indeed you created this world, you created us, and you have a plan for us. And Father, in your creation, you created a time that is revealed in this text that you would come and you would liberate our souls. And for that, Father, we are grateful. Would you help us as we interact with your word now to in our soul where we live experience you, that your word would be illumined, that we would see the truths of your word in a very powerful way. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, national freedom and independence is, you know, a fantastic, wonderful, wonderful thing. And the United States, as we know, has paid a great price for our freedom in the loss of so many lives to secure this freedom. Independence Day reminds us of the great cost paid by so many Americans. From the Scripture, though, we know that national freedom cannot and does not liberate the human soul. National freedom is really a hint or a shadow of real, true spiritual freedom that is found in the Lord Jesus. Like so many who died in battle, to give us national freedom. So Jesus was crucified and separated from God the Father, and we're going to talk about what that separation meant, to give us the ultimate and superior freedom. Ultimate freedom came at the greatest cost. That is what our text is teaching today, that real freedom is the hallmark of biblical Christianity. It releases victims. It revolutionizes systems. It destroys racism. And it ushers in more and more and more and more of God's kingdom. To be truly free is to be free from the slavery of sin 
which the Bible says we all live in before we are born again, before we become Christians. We are slaves to sin, meaning we can't help but sin. In other words, you can't help yourself. You're, li you're like an occupied country, just like the United States of America was an occupied country by Great Britain. They were making the rules. They were levying taxes. They were enforcing the rules. They were dictating life in America to meet their needs and their wants. It's no wonder we celebrate Independence Day to get independent of that. The Bible says that God and that the God of this world, which is not the God, the Trinity, the Bible says the God of this world is actually Satan. And he occupies the non-believing soul like a slave master. And he controls their lives. He dictates their lives because they are slaves to him. It's no wonder before I became a Christian that I couldn't help but sin. I remember many times with a couple of buddies saying, you know, I'm going to quit uh, doing this and I'm going to quit doing that. And then he would call and say, hey, there's a party at so-and-so's house. I was the first one at the door. I was a slave to my sin. This particular section of Scripture is intimately connected to what has already transpired, what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Jesus has been arrested in the garden, betrayed by Judas, and now he has been interrogated by the leadership of the Jewish high priest in the council, the Sanhedrin, and he's been handed over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and he's been readied for crucifixion. And by readied for crucifixion, I mean he has been beaten almost to the point of death. So that's the setting. Now, look with me at John 19, 17 through 22, just to kind of get back into our text. In John 19, 17 through 22, this is how it reads. And he went out bearing his own cross, so he's carrying his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic or Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote on an inscription and put it on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. What I love about this at least in part, is this. It's another example of where God steps in in space and time in human history, and he's using sinful men to accomplish his sovereign purposes. You see, 
God has got the Roman governor Pilate like a puppet on a string in one hand, and he's got the Jewish high priest like a puppet on the string in another hand, and he's going to use their animosity towards one another to get this sign, this placard written over Jesus as he hangs on a cross that says, King of the Jews. And it was because of the frustration between the two parties that Pilate wouldn't change what he wrote. That's God. That's God intervening in time and space, in human history, causing this animosity, leading to the proper title. He is indeed king of the Jews. And that title will not be changed. God used their situation to bring this to pass, just as he does many situations in our day-to-day lives. Um, one lady that uh, we like and is an author of uh, Hope Hills, she calls that a God wink. When God does something in human space and time that is sovereign and it's happening in a very real way. It's almost like God winks at us and says, I got this. I'm in control. You see, it was customary that a criminal being led away to be crucified would be preceded by a man who would carry a placard. On that placard would be written the crime for which this man was condemned. Often it would be affixed to the man's cross, but since Jesus was innocent, there was no crime to put on the placard. Pilate therefore decided to give a parting shot to the Jewish leaders for taking advantage of him, and he took revenge on them for blackmailing him into ordering Jesus' death. You see, Pilate all along said, I don't think this guy's guilty. But they kept pushing, and they kept pushing. And so Pilate's response was, all right, you keep pushing. This is what I'm going to write on the inscription. I'm going to write, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. And why is that important? Because the Jews thought, and even Philip in John 1 says, nothing good can come from Nazareth. In other words, Pilate was taking a shot at them. He was saying, your king comes from nowhere. Your king comes from some backwater, hillbilly place, and he's also convicted of this crime and hanging on a cross. You could see where we all kind of want kings that are handsome and well-spoken and look nice. And so Pilate knows. He's digging He's, he's digging on them. The Romans usually crucified prisoners in public places. They would crucify them along highways. So as you went along the highway, you would see these crosses and these men hanging so that the public would see the price that you'll pay if you challenge Roman authority. Well, it's interesting. This is very interesting. When they would use a scapegoat in Leviticus, when God said, you put the sins of the people on this, this spotless goat and you send him out of the city, he was called 
a scapegoat. He would bear the sins of the people. Do you know what they did with Jesus? He's in the city of Jerusalem. But you know where they crucified him, don't you? They sent him out of the city. That's not a coincidence. That's another way that God winks at us and says, I planned it all along. I've been planning this all the way from Leviticus. We'll send him out with the sins of the world on his shoulders. He'll be crucified outside of the city just like the scapegoats. He is the ultimate scapegoat. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, but it was outside the city. And to make certain that everyone could read it, Pilate commanded that the inscription be written in three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Aramaic. The three languages that were most commonly used at that time in first century Palestine. He wanted everybody to know, not just a few people, but everybody that saw it. As the governor had correctly anticipated, the chief priest and the Jews were infuriated. And they came back in and they said to him, do not write that he's the king of the Jews, but write on there, he said he's the king of the Jews. And you know what Pilate said? What I have written, I have written. And you know what God was saying? He is the king of the Jews. And I have orchestrated even the, di the, the differences between Pilate and the Jews to make the sign read as I wanted it to read from all history. The idea that a victimized man from a town, especially one dying a criminal's death on a cross, to the Jewish high priest felt shameful and ludicrous. It was a direct affront both to the leaders and the nation. Pilate was expressing his contempt for the Jewish people, implying that he was giving them a king that they deserved. They wanted the sophisticated Judeans, they wanted a savior not from Nazareth, can any good come from Nazareth? Jesus did not have the right pedigree for them. What about you? You ever, you ever feel like, eh, maybe I don't have the right pedigree. Maybe I didn't go to the right school. Maybe I didn't come from the right family. Maybe the part of the country that I'm from isn't so well esteemed. Be encouraged. Jesus didn't have the right pedigree for the sophisticated Judeans. But you know what? The truth is, they valued cultural refinement. They valued coming from the right family. They valued coming from the right places. They valued wealth and education. But if you look in Philippians 2, it says that Jesus didn't value equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself 
and took on the form of a servant. What I'm saying is, our God is not into that stuff. Our God is a humble king. Does, does he have the pedigree? <laughs> He's the God of the universe. He could have come from anywhere. He could have gained all the riches. He could have lived in the most prestigious home. He could have done any and all of that. But no, born in a manger, carpenter's son, God chose an earthly, humble existence. Let me ask you this. What does God say he values in a man? What is it that God values? You may remember from our study in Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. What does God value in man? Micah 6, 8. He's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. What does the Lord value in man? 1 Corinthians 1.27 God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. I don't know about you, but when I read that stuff, it's such a blessing. Because in my inward world, I'm not strong. I'm not wealthy. I don't have the greatest pedigree. In the world, maybe I'm nothing. But in God's eyes, that's not what counts. We just read what counts. The world views faith in God and dependence on Him as foolish. The Bible being authoritative truth is just silly. So I go and I, I uh, my old barber has left town, so I go to a new barber this week. Um, and she's probably in her mid-60s, maybe early 70s, Italian woman from New Jersey, and she's cutting my hair, and she says, uh, pastors love this question. So what do you do? I'm like, just put that on a T, would you? Um, I'm a pastor. It can go a couple of different ways. Usually if they're not cutting your hair, they just walk off. But if they're cutting your hair, they still need your 30 bucks. So she's got to stay there. And she says, uh, so why did you choose that? almost like that you know and so I shared a, a moment of how God had changed my life when I was in college and how I had begun to understand and see the gospel and as I did that I began to experience true freedom at a soul level and she says to me I, and then my next question so what's your experience and this is a great question in evangelism for us what's your experience with the church 
And she said, oh, the church to me has been a nightmare. I was raised Catholic. They were mean. I didn't like what I uh, was taught. And then I went and became a Jehovah's Witness. And I took my kids down that trail. I found all this hypocrisy at the upper level leadership. We left that. And now I'm nothing. And she said, what I believe is it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you just be good to other people. And I said, so what about the Bible? She says, the Bible doesn't make, the Bible's just another book. And I, I don't know her well enough. It's the first time she's ever cut my hair. I wasn't going to go, oh, wait up, wait up, you're a moron. You can't say that. I wasn't going to say that. I, was, I just said, you know, uh, it's interesting. I'd love to have another conversation with you about this, but I do think there's ultimate truth, and I do think that it matters doctrinally and theologically what you believe, not just how you act, and that the Bible teaches us how to love one another. And so it was interesting to me, though. It was a good window into our culture. Our culture today almost views the Bible as just an irrelevant book. It's just one other book that's out there. Not the inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. And so, because I believe that, and because John, the writer of our gospel, believed that, I want to show you a couple of things that he included in the text. Because this is what he believes. So, in our text here in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, he actually begins to show us fulfilled prophecy. So John isn't just telling us the story of the cross. He's also loaded it with, and this prophecy was fulfilled, and this prophecy was fulfilled. And, and I'm going to show you. Look, look with me at John 19, 23 through 24. It says, when the soldiers had gotten hot they adjusted the air no John 19 23 and 24 when the soldiers had crucified Jesus they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier also his tunic but the tunic was seamless woven in one place from top to bottom so they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it so we can see it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures which said, you see that? You see that? John said, this was to fulfill the scriptures which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now, John is taking us through several different fulfillment of prophecy in this text. If you look at John 24, where he says, they divided my garments among them, if you were to flip over to Psalm 22:18, you would see in Psalm 22:18 something that was written a thousand years before the cross. Before John is writing this, David is writing a thousand years ahead, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
Do you see the significance of that? And then the last words in John 19, 28. So look with me down there at John 19, 28. John is doing it again. He says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, and then in my Bible, in parentheses it says, to fulfill the Scripture, Jesus said, everything's finished, but he says, I thirst. And because he said, I thirst, says a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. Where does this come from? It comes from Psalm 6921. It's another prophecy, a thousand years ahead of time, that says in Psalm 6921, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now, in John 19:33, it says that they did not break Jesus' legs. Why is that important? When they crucified you and you didn't die in time, they would come along with a stick or something, and they would, whoever was left being hanging on the cross, and they would take the stick and they would break the legs because the legs were crossed over and they could push up on the nail and it would allow them to get breath into their lungs. But when you break the legs, the body sinks and now you can't breathe and so you suffocate fast and die sooner. God had it planned from the beginning that Jesus would die before the other two hanging on the cross and his legs would not be broken. Do you know why that is important? If you go all the way back to when God tells Moses about the Passover lamb, the lamb that was to be the forerunner of the ultimate lamb of God, when they would kill the lamb, here's what it says in Exodus 12, 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. And here's the kicker right here. And you shall not break any of its bones. The Passover lamb was to not have its bones broken so that when we get over here in the New Testament and God is trying to show us the authority of the Word of God through these prophecies, He says, see, I set it up in Exodus and it's coming true in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, God gives us these miracles. He pierces his side. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, they will pierce his side with a sword. Miracle, prophecy, prophecy after prophecy. God is, and John, the author of our book, is showing us the authority and in the inerrancy of the Word of God. <clears throat> now, quickly, look with me at John 19, 25 through 30.
I'm just going to read, well, I'll read the whole thing. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister. This is confusing. So you got Mary standing by the cross of Jesus is his mother. So that's Mary, right? And then his mother's sister. And then you have Mary Magdalene. Evidently, Mary was a very common name. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And then it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill Scripture, it says again, I thirst. And a jar of wine was brought to him, and they gave him the bitter wine. Now, let me ask you this question. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. Why does Jesus refer to Mary, his mother, as woman? Woman, behold your son. It, it kind of, in the English language, comes across a little bit harsh. Woman. But it also reminds us over in John 3, when Jesus was asked by his mother to perform the very first miracle, turn the water into wine, he says, woman, do not bother me. What is going on with that? What is going on with that in the original language it was, it was more of a formal term. And Jesus is coming out from under his parents. And he's taking the rightful place of authority as God. And so it's not a degrading term when Jesus says it. He actually refers to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and other women in that way. It's more just a formal term. But here's another question that kind of stumps you if you think about it. Jesus is on the cross. He looks down. He sees four women, and he sees John, the apostle who's writing our book. And he says to them, woman, your son. And he says to John, this is now your mother. The question I have is the obvious question. Why does Jesus give his mother to John and not to one of his biological half-brothers? You know, one of Jesus' half-brothers is James, who wrote the book of James in the New Testament. So why not, instead of saying to John, there's your mother, why not say, hey, James, take care of mom? That seems more natural doesn't it? Well, the first question is you probably have is, well, you may be saying, did Jesus really have brothers? Because I thought he was born in Immaculate, you know, all of that. But if you go and you look in Mark 6, 3, and you look in Matthew 13, 55, Joseph and Mary had other children after Jesus. So indeed, Jesus did have half-brothers and sisters. One of them was James. But why didn't he say, Joseph, the father, take care of Mary? Probably because culturally, 
Joseph would have been a lot older than Mary, and he's probably already died at this point. So it's natural that Joseph couldn't do it. The Lord could not commit, and this is an interesting point, he could not commit Mary into the care of his half-brothers. You know why? They had not yet believed. Their own brother was the Messiah. He was Jesus. But they had not yet come to faith in that and believe that. After the resurrection, they do. After the resurrection, they come and they believe and they place their faith in Christ. But up to this point, they had not. And so, Jesus commits them. But the point to not be missed is that at the last moments before Jesus says it is finished and dies on the cross, you know what he's doing? He's caring for the people that he loves. And he's making arrangements for them when he's gone. He's, he's still thinking about others in the very last moments. Now, here's my last question and the last part of the sermon. What did Jesus mean by saying, it is finished? What was finished? What, what did he mean when he says, it is finished? And I like how Pastor Weaver said, when he said, when he read it, he read it more closely to the correct reading. In Matthew 27, 50, not in our gospel, but in a parallel gospel, when Jesus said it is finished, it says he shouted, it is finished. And it was a loud cry of triumph. The work of redemption that the Father had given him to accomplish, sin was atoned for, Satan was defeated and rendered powerless. Every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin had been appeased, and every prophecy had now been fulfilled. And so Christ can say, it is finished. It's the completion of the redemptive work of our Savior. But you know what was the worst part? You know, sometimes pastors, and I've been in situations where they'll do this, they'll talk about they nailed hammers in his hands. Oh, how painful. And they nailed things in his feet. Oh, how painful. And they put a crown of thorns and they whipped him. Let me just say this. The Lord Jesus Christ, if our Bible is correct, he took the sins of the world on his soul. And because God the Father is holy, he could not look at that. And so in a parallel gospel, Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? You know why God forsaken him? Because of our sins. 
And you want to talk about agony. All through the Gospels, Jesus is in lockstep with the Father. There's only one place in the history of eternity that the Trinity is not in lockstep with one another. And it is at the moment that the sin of the world is placed on the Son, that's agony. That's spiritual agony. I would venture to say a million times more painful than the physical crucifixion. Plenty of Roman citizens and other people had been crucified. Nobody on a Roman cross, nobody has taken on the sin of the world. Only Jesus. And that is why it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we can know God. You see, if there were anything that you could do physically, like coming to church, tithing, being a good person, doing things for people, if any of that could earn you your salvation, why would Christ die? Why would he experience the separation from the Father? And this is the gospel message that all other religions miss. You can't earn it. You can only receive it by faith because Christ earned it and only he could earn it. You can't be good enough. And that's what makes the true believer, when they really get that in their soul at a heart level, it changes them forever. And they sing the praises of God, hallelujah. I could have never saved myself. Only you, Jesus, only you, Jesus, could save me from my sins. What about you? Are you still somehow trusting in your works to one day see Jesus face to face? Or are you hoping in him and him alone? Let's pray.